Matthew chapter 7, as we begin Matthew chapter 7 today, and we come uh, in, in this last chapter of what records the Sermon on the Mount. As you turn there, I would remind us that really what we get both in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke's what is called the Sermon on the Plain, which is probably a reference to the same sermon, and if you understand the words for mount and plain, you would know that they're not, uh, those aren't in conflict. Uh, but, but both Luke and Matthew are summarizing days and days of, of teaching here. And so if, if you're thinking, man, we just keep going week after week after week through the Sermon on the Mount, Logan, like Jesus did it in three chapters. What's taking you so long? Well, let me remind you that these are the cliff notes of days and days and days of Jesus' teaching. And so... Um, I imagine as a preacher, maybe Jesus, uh, well, certainly he would have been far more interesting than me. However, uh, he might have made me look brief in my delivery. But we come now to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first six verses of this passage today, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not, give what is whole, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It is often said today when we might bring any type of correction or advice to somebody, we might hear something like, don't judge me. Or we might even hear something like, I, I feel judged. It becomes this saying that, that is often used anytime we don't want to be corrected because, you know, nothing could be worse than being judged. Therefore, if somebody is telling us we are doing something we ought not, we respond with, don't judge me. Well, listen to what two pastors said about this text. It should be noted that this passage has erroneously been used to suggest that believers should never evaluate or criticize anyone for anything. Our day hates absolutes, especially theological and moral absolutes, and such simplistic interpretation provides a convenient escape from confrontation. Members of modern society, including many professing Christians, tend to resist dogmatism and strong convictions about right and wrong. Many people prefer to speak to all-inclusive love, compromise, ecumenism, and unity. To the modern religious person, those are the only doctrines worth defending, and they are the doctrines to which every conflicting doctrine must be sacrificed. That that sermon that contained that quote was preached on May 4th of 1980. Now, how much more does our world today, 40 years later, call for a a lack of judgment. And that, hey, Christians cannot criticize anyone, and there can be no absolutes, no theological and moral absolutes. Somewhere around the same time, another pastor, I couldn't find the exact 
date of when Jim Boyce said this, but he was preaching through Matthew in the 80s as well. He said, whenever Christians say that something is either right or wrong, or whenever they speak out against immoral or destructive behavior in another person, they are frequently told that they are not to judge, meaning that any behavior is right and that any attempt to deny that it is right is itself wrong. I'm going to read that again, meaning that any behavior is right and that any attempt to deny that it is right is itself wrong. In fact, the only maybe moral thing we can say today is we got a society, by the way, that's trying to build a morality on consent. As long as anything is consensual, well, then it's perfectly acceptable. And the only great evil is to say that it is evil. In fact, in our postmodern environment, the only acknowledged evil is claiming that someone else is mistaken. This is the world we live in. Forty years ago, judgment was being used in this way, or this idea of judgment was being used in this way, and how much more so is it being used now? But can that be what Jesus means when he says, judge not, lest you be judged? And I think the resounding answer is no. Let's consider a few verses with me, if you will. Don't try and turn there. I'm going to go quickly. You can just look forward to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. You don't have to turn anywhere for that one, where Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And we know that the context is that these are false prophets because they speak what is wrong. And if the church is going to understand what is right and wrong, it must evaluate what is spoken. It is no great evil to evaluate a preacher and to test his, uh, his statements against God's word. In fact, it must be done. But how are we to know who are the false prophets? Well, you know them by their works. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 says that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If our brother sins, we are to go and tell them their fault. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Um, sorry, my watch is making noise up here. I'm trying to turn it off. Uh, if he... If he uh, is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler to not even to eat with such a one. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Uh, the NIV opts where the ESV says, Reason for reprove. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And that is certainly the context of Leviticus 19. I should have put it in here. I don't know the reference off the top of my head. I can find it to, for you if you want. But Proverbs says not to set your heart on putting your son to death. And what is the call of what we are to do to our sons to not put them to death? Discipline them. I mean, Solomon understood a lack of disciplining our children to be murderous. And not just murderous in this life, eternally murderous. 
And so if Jesus means you should never tell anybody that they've done something they ought not do, what happens to all of these verses? Well, I would argue that Jesus is not prohibiting calling sin, sin. So what is he prohibiting? He's prohibiting censoriousness. He's prohibiting uh, making judgments that are extra-biblical, that are outside of Scripture. He is prohibiting creating your own standard and then holding others to it. Remember, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and basically the whole Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is contrasting his, his true teaching with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, and the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Their teaching had been elevated, and the ways they thought you should live out God's law had been elevated, at least in their own minds, and certainly in culture, but not in reality, above Scripture. And they could never even keep their own standard. Matthew 23, 4, uh, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. In other words, what the Pharisees had done is they had taken the truth of God's word and asked it to be subjected to the cultural understanding rather than subjecting our understanding of the culture to God's word. Does this sound familiar? If there is any kind of, uh, any statement in God's word that offends modern sensibilities, we're supposed to reorient our understanding of God's word to fit the culture today rather than calling us to see the culture through the lens of scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the truth is, it's really, really easy to do. It's really easy to set up our own standard, and we're going to see why. And here Jesus teaches us three truths about unrighteous judgment. We're going to start by looking at three truths about unrighteous judgments and what those are, and then follow that by one contrast of a righteous judgment. So first, look with me, number one, at verse one, unrighteous judgment takes the place of God. And Jesus is going to answer for us what unrighteous judgment is, but he's also going to tell us why it's, un, uh, why, why it's wrong. And first, we see that unrighteous judgment takes the place of God. Notice he starts out in verse 1 by saying, Judge not that you be not judged. Well, there is only one logical question to this. By whom? Judge not lest you be not judged. By whom? And the only answer is God, but more specifically, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the only true and righteous judge. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Romans 14, 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The answer to the question, by whom, is the Lord. 
And when we attempt to make unrighteous judgments about our brothers and sisters in Christ, as they're called in these verses, or other servants of the Master, we make ourselves out to be God. We put ourselves in God's position, making judgments that he, only He is qualified to make. <clears throat> See, what I think Jesus is getting at here is that it's not wrong to call sin what God has already judged to be sin. And so if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. But, but we have to make sure that in those attempts and in those efforts, that what they're guilty of is actually sin. Because God has called it sin. When God says you, you cannot lie or cheat or steal or swindle or covet or lust, or commit adultery, or uh, whatever the, the sin is that we might have in view here, and, and somebody commits that sin, and we go to that person, and we say, this was wrong, it's not judging, because God has already judged it to be wrong. But even then, we still have to be careful because it's not just making our own standard and then holding others to it, which we'll get to, that is judging. Uh, we have to be careful uh, about making condemnations because sometimes what we do, even if we know that what that person has done wrong, is we condemn them. And this, again, is playing God. Because if God does not condemn, condemn those who are in Christ, if there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then who are we to condemn without mercy? If God, who never needs mercy or grace, shows mercy or grace, how can we who are desperately in need of mercy and grace fail to show mercy and grace? It takes the place of God to condemn without mercy. And I would argue that this is especially true, and there's much scripture, I think, that speaks to this, when we assume people's motives. You know, I think this often goes one of two ways. Somebody sins against us. And we go, hey, you sinned against me, and that was hurtful. And they go, I, I, I didn't mean to. And we go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you meant to or not, what you did was hurtful to me. And we condemn them, not considering their motives. But then, when they do something, even if it's right, and we go, oh, they might have done the right thing, but we know it was for the wrong motives. And we condemn them for their motives. And so motives don't matter when somebody's done something wrong against us, and they do matter when we just want to simply find fault. But really, if God is the only one who sees the heart, if God is the only one who knows the heart, if we are, as we understand ourselves to be, finite creatures, then we take the place of God. We set ourselves up to be God when we make not only extra scriptural judgments, calling things wrong that God does not call wrong, but when we condemn without mercy and assume the motives of other people or dismiss the motives of other people. 1 Corinthians 13 is clear that love believes all things. Love assumes the best. 
Love requires of us that when the actions are wrong, we count the motives. And when the actions are right, or even when they're wrong, we assume the best motives. It is always an unrighteous judgment to assume negatively the motives of others. Because unrighteous judgment takes the place of God and makes judgments that only God is qualified to make. Secondly, and maybe most scary, in verse 2, we see that unrighteous judgment sets God's standard of judgment. Unrighteous judgment sets God's standard of judgment. Jesus goes on to say, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We will be judged not merely by God's standard, but also by our own. Now, is there anyone in here who would like today to argue that they are the perfect keeper of their own standards? You can see why this gets very scary. This was very, very clearly seen for me when I was working full-time in hospice as a chaplain, because Medicare, who sets the regulations for hospice, is going to tell you the minimum number of visits you can make. So for example, if a hospice company says that you have to have a skilled nursing visit to a patient on hospice one time a week, that's the standard, that's the rule that's been set. However, if the company that you work for says that you have to have a skilled nursing visit every two weeks, guess what happens to the standard? If Medicare comes in and audits your patient care and they find that you have a a policy that says we do two visits a week, but you only do one visit a week, they're not going to say, hey, it's no big deal. The law only says you have to make one visit a week. No, they're going to come in and say, it does not matter what the law says, your policy says two visits a week, and you have not been doing two visits a week. You're in trouble. They don't hold you to the lower standard. They hold you to the higher standard. So if your policy is lower than Medicare's, Medicare's is still the policy. But if your policy is higher than Medicare's, now your policy is the standard. This is effectively what Jesus is saying, that God and and he, as our judge, specifically Jesus, is going to hold us to whatever standard is higher, not whatever standard is lower. And so if we make up our own rules and our own judgments that are outside of Scripture and we hold people to them, well, we're going to be held to our standard. And I don't think it just applies to that one thing. I think the harshness with with which we treat and evaluate others is the measure that God will measure back to us. We are told, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And not just the judgment about specific things, but with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I've heard a lot, especially as we get passionate about things. But I remember one example particularly clearly where uh, I was working at a church. I was not the preaching pastor. I was a youth pastor. And I was sitting in the, the service that one day. And, uh, and I think it was this pretty cringy moment. Jennifer and I looked at each other and we went, oh, this is going to be bad. 
because the pastor stood in the pulpit at this large church and he basically declared that if you cared about your children's discipleship, you would send them to Christian school. And we went, oh, this is, this is trouble. People are going to be upset. And no doubt, people were upset. Because the reality is, I've seen, I've seen public school and homeschool and private school all be done well. And I've seen them all done poorly. But I can't find anywhere uh, in Scripture that says, if you care about the discipleship of, the chil- of your children, thou shalt private school, or thou shalt homeschool, or thou shalt not public school. And when we take something that we have deemed as valuable for us and our family and our children, and we hold that everybody else to that standard... We've become judges with evil intents. Or, and we'll talk about this later, maybe we just assume we're better because we've done something different. At one point, it was wrong to go to the movies. Didn't matter what was in the movie because certainly we would all say there are movies that are wrong to go see. But just going to the movies at all was evil. There, There was a time when playing cards was evil. I'm not specifically speaking of gambling. I actually think there's a pretty good biblical case to be made against it. But is it wrong to play go fish with your five-year-old? Or alcohol? I cannot make any distinction anywhere in Scripture that says you must drink or you must not drink. Now, making guidelines for yourself to live faithfully is a good thing. Uh, in regards to alcohol, there's been pretty strict guidelines in my life. I was telling somebody yesterday, not by my own virtue, I've never been drunk in my life. And it's because I watched my family destroy themselves with alcohol. I was like, I'm just never going to go there. It's not worth it to me. Now, if I make a rule, and I'm not talking about drunkenness, clearly that's forbidden in Scripture, but if I were to make a rule in Scripture or, or for myself that says, I can never drink alcohol, and then held you to that standard, or condemned you because you didn't live to my standard, now I've become a judge with evil motives. It's absolutely okay to put guidelines and rules in place in our life to protect ourselves from sin. But when those guidelines are not in Scripture, and then we begin to hold everybody else to them and measure them against how we're doing with our own rules, we've become judges with evil intents. And it's dangerous because not only does it play God, but it sets God's standard of judgment for us. And thirdly, unrighteous judgment is rooted in pride. Unrighteous judgment is rooted in pride. Look with me at verses 3 through five. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The word for speck can be used not just of something like sawdust, but chaff or stubble or even a small plant. Why does that matter? Because I don't think Jesus is contrasting little sins with big ones. I think he's contrasting big sins with bigger ones. It's not like any of us can go around and say, oh, it's not a big deal. I just got a little speck in my eye. You know, no big deal. We're, we're talking like you got a plant growing out of your eye. And you're looking at somebody else going, well, you got a tree growing out of your eye. 
Or really what Jesus is getting at is the other way around. We've allowed this, this thing to grow into a, a plank, into a, a, a log, into this massive tree sticking out of our eye, which certainly would be blinding us from seeing anything rightly. And we're more concerned about the other guy. In other words, you got to do spiritual triage. you got to start with yourself. Why do you not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, whatever is in view is no small thing. It's not small sin versus big, but big versus huge. And I don't think what Jesus can mean here is that we are to never help each other out with the specks in our own eye. And that's certainly true from this text and others. Jesus doesn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, take the log out of your eye first, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 1 and 2 says, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The call here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, of bearing one another's burdens is specifically a reference to sin. To bear the burden of sin that others carry. And again, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, tell him his fault. If he listens, you've won your brother. If not, take some witnesses and eventually tell it to the church, if you must. But notice specifically what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says about bearing one another's burdens. If anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, restore this one in a spirit of gentleness, bearing his burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not so deny the law of Christ. If the law of Christ is to bear one another's burdens, then Jesus can't be saying, don't ever take the speck out of someone else's eye. In fact, I think maybe what might be in view here is self-righteousness. Because ultimately, this is the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous on their own. Having a tree in their eye, they thought their eyes were clear to see. They thought everybody else needed justified, but they had things all together. I heard somebody say one time, I wish I could remember where it is, that righteousness wants people to look like Jesus, and legalism wants people to look like me. We become judges when we create our own laws that are not just for our good and for our health and for our righteousness, but for everybody's. And we see saying, hey, I want you to look like God, and therefore when there's sin in your life, I'll correct you. And we start saying, I want you to look like me. And therefore, when you do anything that's against my standards, I'll correct you. But, but the Pharisees were guilty of this monstrous sin of self-righteousness, thinking that they didn't need justification. They didn't need anything removed from their eyes. Jesus is not forbidding helping others. He is forbidding helping others without dealing with yourself. In other words, 
Uh, I think what he's calling for here is no relative righteousness. This is a, a term coined by, actually I don't know if it was coined by, that I, but that I heard from a local pastor. But relative righteous looks like this. Let's say over here we have God and his righteousness. And over here we have the world. Now God never moves. This is a stationary target. He is perfectly righteous. But if we understand Romans correctly, the world is constantly in a state of moving away from God. The question before us all is which direction will we face? Will we look at God and say, here is my standard? And it doesn't matter how far the world travels. It can travel as far away from God as it wants. My eyes are fixed here. But if we turn around and look at the world and say, and others, and we say, well, look at everything they're doing. I'm going to keep my distance. Then as they move and we keep our distance, what happens to us? We just keep maintaining our distance. I'm not like those poor suckers. I'm not doing those things. I'm not like those people. But all the while, I'm moving away from the target. We, 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 when we set our standards based upon people, we are inevitably in this place where we will move away from God. And we will have self-righteousness grow in us. I'm not like them. I'm not like those miserable suckers. Isn't this the Jesus' example of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Where the Pharisee stands in the middle of the temple and prays that he is glad he is not like all of these other sinners? And the tax collector, off in the corner, beats his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus declares to us that it is not the Pharisee who goes away justified. It's the tax collector. We... We can't make unrighteous judgments that are rooted in pride, that set up our own standards when we can't perfectly keep God's standard, and then measure everyone else against our standard. That's what Jesus means by judgmentalism. Yes, when we sin, we correct each other. We care for each other. We bear one another's burdens. But when we, when we set up our own standard and hold everybody else to it and apply our rules to everyone else in, in areas that God has not necessarily declared what is right or wrong, then we've become unrighteous judges, setting up our own standard, self-righteous as we declare our own self-made righteousness because we're just, well, better than all of you miserable sinners. Unrighteous judgment, judgment that makes judgments of what's right or wrong uh, apart from God's word. Now, we can get awful nitpicky here. Yes, I said there were movies that were wrong to see. Well, we're told to flee any kind of, of I mean, the, the words in Greek are, are pretty clear, but any kind of sexual immorality. We can't go watch, I mean, I was amazed, this is going to show how old I am because I don't really keep up with TV these days, but when I was working with young adults and like the big things to watch were Dexter or Game of Thrones, 
and Christians are talking about how great these shows are. And I'm like, you're just, you're just entertaining yourself with rape and incest and sex and nudity. And you're, you're willing to talk about how, like, this is not unrighteous judgment. God has judged these things wrong. But when we set up our own standards, if you're like me, you wouldn't eat meat. You wouldn't drink alcohol. You would school your kids this way. You would spend your free time that way. You would pray this many hours a day. You would read your Bible this much a day. You would, whatever, fill in the blank. It's self-justification that is no longer sought to compare ourselves to the righteous standard of God, but to compare ourselves to others. And we've become Pharisees in the process. However, righteous judgment requires discernment. Point number four, righteous judgment requires discernment. Now, Jesus is taking the opposite end of the spectrum. Don't judge that you be not judged, but now he says, don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus here is calling us, I think, to correction, to offering people our pearls and to offer what is holy. This is not absolute rejection of any correction, but what happens when our correction goes unheeded or not even unheeded, hated? Because in that day, dogs, they they didn't view dogs like we viewed dogs. Dogs weren't kept as pets. Maybe except for the rare person who kept dogs for herding sheep. Dogs were wild. Uh, they were feral. They were not clean. And, and I think what Jesus is getting at when he says, don't give to dogs what is holy, is he's saying you're not going to take the meat from the temple that's sacrificed to God that even the priests don't get to eat and throw it to the dogs. Similarly, you're not going to throw your pearls. Pearls would have been the most valuable of precious stones, even though they're not stones, um, in that day. You wouldn't throw them before pigs, the most unclean and vile animal. If you're going to Israel with us, and if you're not going to Israel with us, I would highly encourage you to do so. We still have some room. But the guy who's going to be our tour guide is a guy I know, and I was talking with him one day, and, I was, and, and he was like, man... I can't even remember how it came up, but we started talking about pigs, and we were just like, oh man, bacon is so good, and he was just disgusted. Like the idea that we would eat sausage is just, pigs are unclean. And again, the, the image here is not what we would think of as a pig. In fact, I got a friend who's a pastor, he grew up in Texas, he had a pig, the pig got out, the pig got loose, it was wild and feral, and as soon as it had got loose from his house, it started growing tusks. Like the moment it was in a wild environment, the whole demeanor of this this animal changed. We're not talking about domesticated like barn pigs, we're talking about feral, wild, destroy everything kind of pigs. Now, what do wild pigs and wild dogs do? Well, if you offer them what is holy and if you offer them pearls, they're going to devour them or trample them underfoot and then probably turn to attack you. 
And so what happens when we offer the pearl of correction or the holy thing of the gospel to people and they just turn to attack us? Do we have to continue to offer them forever? I don't think we do. When we offer what is holy and what is valuable to the world, maybe you have friends who listen and they're like, oh, that's nice for you, but that's not for me. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. Simple rejection of the gospel or rejection of us is not what Jesus has in mind here. But when we offer the gospel to people, when we offer correction to people, and they just respond violently and turn to attack, we don't have to continue to lay those pearls or those holy things down in front of those people. We don't want to make extra biblical judgments, but we don't want to do nothing either. It's okay to tell the world that they're in sin and they need the gospel. It's okay to tell believers that they're in sin and they're in need of repentance. But when our treasures are rejected, we don't have to continue wasting our treasures there. I see several applications from this text, and we'll wrap up. In fact, six, I believe, yes, six applications from this text, and they're pretty simple. Number one, this is a convicting one because I'm really, really lousy at this. How do you respond when you are corrected? How do you respond when you're corrected? Do you respond as though somebody just gave you treasure? Or are you more worried about protecting the plank in your own eye? Or maybe, maybe you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye. I remember one time I was building cabinets and uh, I, I was cutting something and I got a piece of... Um, I got a piece of sawdust in my eye, and I, I couldn't get it out. I was like blinking like crazy. I didn't want to rub it. I didn't want to scratch my eye. And this guy I worked with, George, he comes at me with this pencil, with a construction pencil, you know, the big, flat construction pencil. And I was like backing up, and he's like, what's the matter? I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'll help you get that out. Like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, seriously, I'll help you get it out. So I open my eye. He takes the pencil, and of course, the lead wasn't sharp. It had been used. And he just uses the lead of this pencil to swipe this piece of sawdust right out of my eye. Barely feel it touch my eye, and this thing was gone. Now when somebody comes at you with a stick, and you've got a speck in your eye, how are you going to respond? Leave me alone, George. you got a big old piece of wood in your hand. Who are you to judge me for having a piece of sawdust in my eye? What happens if the person who calls you to remove the speck from your eye has a tree growing out of theirs? Are you going to fight to protect this piece of sawdust in your eye? Maybe they should be dealing with themselves first, but I got to deal with myself first. And sometimes people with big logs might have an opportunity to help us. How do you respond when somebody corrects you? And secondly, and most obviously, we've already made this point over and over, is deal with yourself first. Don't hate your brother by refusing to reprove him or your sister by refusing to reprove her, but just make sure you're dealing with yourself first. Number three, when you see sin in others, let it promote confession in you and not judgment. We've often probably heard the saying, but by the grace of God, so go I. Do we really believe that? 
When we see people in the world who are vile sinners, do we rightly look at them and say, but by the grace of God go I? Or or do we pay lip service to that all while thinking, I could never do that? If you think that there is any sin out there that you're not capable of, be on your guard. Because that's the sin you'll be tempted to. We are capable of anything. And everything. How often... Have we found out a marriage is being dissolved because somebody cheated and we thought, oh, I never thought it'd be them. Guess what? They might have never thought it would be them either. And your guard's down. When you see sin in others, don't let it promote judgmentalism in you. Let it promote confession. Number four, don't expect the world to act like the church. Don't expect the world to act like the church. If you were here when Mike Alameda was here, he said this, and I thought it was a really brilliant statement. He said, Christians are the only people in the world who can be hypocrites. Because when the world sins like the world, they're just acting like the world. But when the church sins like the world, we're acting like the world. You and I have a greater capacity for hypocrisy because we have been made new. Our hearts of stone have been removed and we've been given hearts of flesh. Our once dead spirits have been made alive in Christ. And so stop expecting the world to act like the church. Because the reality is, is even if we could legislate politically all the righteousness in the world we wanted, people would still die and go to hell. What they need is not our legislation. What they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they need is for their hearts of stone to be removed and given hearts of flesh by by the God who alone can do that. And he does that when we have the courage to understand that the world is going to be the world and we go share the gospel with them anyways. Scripture calls us to be insulated from the world but never isolated from it. Number five, don't impose your rules for your good on someone else. Live out your conscience by all means. In fact, we know that to live contrary to our conscience is sin. But be careful not to judge another servant of the master. Romans 14.4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And number six This one is especially applicable to parents. Guard the example you set for your kids. Guard the example you set for your kids. Guard how you speak of others and how you see others. Because how you do is how they will. If God's first move is always towards grace, then so should ours be. Don't don't teach them that you're better than others. For, for whatever things it is, whatever ways you live out your faith in, you, in good conscience before God that are outside of the commands of Scripture, don't set up unrighteous comparisons that teach them to think that they're better than others. Because those of us who have kids, we've got to be really, really careful with this because they will pick this up from us 
quickly. We shouldn't do it, but for those of us who are still raising kids in our house, we've got to be really, really careful with the example that we set. Lord, give us wisdom to know your word, to know the standard that you have set, to know what you have called us to. Lord, give us obedience even to our consciences. May our consciences be seared by your word and by your spirit. But but may we know the difference between what your word commands and what our own consciences require of us. May we be very careful not to apply those standards to others. Lord, may we not be unrighteous judges with evil motives. May we not seek to promote our own righteousness which we really have none. We, we all desperately need the righteousness of Christ applied to us. So keep us from such sins. Lord, may we be bold with the gospel. May we offer what is holy to the dogs and the pigs that we once were. But Lord, when they reject those, when they respond with violence or, or anger, Let us also in good conscience know that you don't require of us to cast our pearls before swine. Lord, let us not be like that. Let us be those who willingly receive rebuke and correction, even from people who who might be dealing with their own areas where they need rebuke and correction. May May we view that correction as a gift, keeping us from unrighteous things. May we not seek to protect our, uh, our sin as though it were good for us. But may we live righteously and in good conscience before you and with each other in peace. For your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name.